welcome back to Green Planet Blue Planet podcast. I am Julian Guderlei, and this is Green Planet Blue Planet podcast, where you get to hear the stories and insights from entrepreneurs, social change makers, and artists displaying how each and everyone's uniqueness makes this planet worth living on. For more, check out greenplanet-blueplanet.com. And today with me, it's a great honor, is Philip Moore, author and synergistical guide from the bioregion of the Sweet Seas, the Great Lakes. He's on the phone with me today. Welcome, Phil. Thank you, Julian. It's great to be with you. Well, Phil, let's kick this off with this. I would love to understand how you start your days. How Do you have a morning routine? Yes, I do have a, a morning routine. Um, I would say it would be more like a morning practice of a direct experience. And so the way that it works for me is dreams are very alive in my consciousness. And so there are times when I'm in that subtle state of consciousness where there may be a fragment or a part of the dream that has really grabbed my interest. And so before I really wake into my body, I usually spend some time with whatever that fragment was. This morning it was uh, a, a former student who is a grandson of Walter Ruther, who was a union leader and a very powerful force in this part of the world during the union movement. And so for some reason, Victor was in my consciousness and in my heart, and I was connecting with him and so that always opens me and my heart because I feel after over a thousand children here at Upland Hills School there's something about I am you and you are me and we are all together and so then I sit and I do meditation and the kind of meditation that I'm doing now is to meditate Meditate with no problem, and then whatever arises after I'm finished with that meditation to confirm that I had no problem. And this is a meditation that Jeff Carrera teaches, and I just took a virtual retreat with Jeff Carrera and 83 people, and I'm still very much in that retreat. So meditating as no one and nobody is really a great way of shifting a paradigm. And that's exactly what my practice is right now, is to meditate as if I am not an individual achiever trying to do something on the planet. I'm meditating as no one doing nothing. Mm. And it's a very powerful thing. I often wake up my body with something called the three-body workout, which is something that the Integral Institute uh, offered in 2006, and I had it on some DVD, and I've since memorized it. And so it only takes 15 minutes or 10 minutes to do the, the three-body workout, the gross body, the subtle body, and the causal body. And then I often say a prayer out loud to Tonkashala and Pachamamita. It's a Native American way of waking into the 
morning and waking into prayer and deep gratitude. And I often face and call in the medicine of each direction, the medicine of the East, which is new beginnings, the medicine of the South, which is healing, and the medicine of the West, which is for transformation, and the medicine of the North, which is wisdom. And sometimes I include three more directions, the medicine of Pachamamita, Mother Earth, and the nourishing and nurturing that is required and, and appreciated so deeply by all of us. And then Grandfather Sky, which is the medicine of vast potential. And then the, the secret medicine inside each of us, the sacred, unknowable uh, self-awareness spark of divinity or what we might call it inside. So my morning, now that I'm in my rewirement, can last, <laughs> it can last as, as short as maybe a half an hour or an hour. And sometimes, as in this morning, several hours. Wow, powerful. That's a very elaborate way to, to connect in the morning. Um, what, I, what I love hearing is, is the connection to the dream world as you're waking out of the dream world and that transition into the awareness into the waking world. Thank you for sharing that. That's very profound. Maybe, Phil, tell our listeners a little bit more about you and your background. You just mentioned Upland Hills. Um, what is Upland Hills and how, how does that um, occur in your storyline? Well, from 1971 until just three years ago, two years ago, I was the uh, director and co-founder of something called Upland Hills School, which is a uh, next paradigm school or a, an, an experiment in a love-based education for children that are four years old to 14. Over the 42 years that I was the director and co-founder of Upland Hills School, we probably have touched the lives of 1,000 children or more and their families and their friends. So there was also something that occurred in 1977 called the Upland Hills Ecological Awareness Center. It was a nonprofit organization that a group of us started. Initially, we really wanted ecological awareness to be at the very center of everything that we did in this community. And ecological awareness is very different than environmental awareness. Ecological, ecos means home. So it's the study of, it's, it's really the experience of this earth is our home. So we were not interested in doing legislative, political action things directly necessarily. We love the idea of hosting them. So if the Sierra Club wanted to use our Upland Hills Ecological Awareness Center for their conference, that we thought was so much better than using a hotel. And so we did that. Uh, but for many years, the Upland Hills Ec Ecological Awareness Center hosted world teachers. Mm -hmm. So we've hosted Ram Dass and we've hosted Buckminster Fuller, Joanna Macy, um, Gene Houston, just to, to name a few. And then for many years, I would say for 25 to 27 years, the Lakota people have sent to us 
through the great mystery, uh, teachers. So for over 25 years or 22 years, George Arenavar or Jorge Arenavar was our teacher and guide in sweat lodge ceremonies, but also in drum making and vision quests. And so what, what I'm looking at right now is the school garden. There's a house here that was named by Buckminster Fuller. It's called Upland Hills House. And in that house is where Karen and I lived and where we raised our two children, Sasha and Nina. This house is a passive solar home that was con- completed in 1980. And then as I look just outside my window, there's a wood chip, wood chip path that leads past the geodesic dome into Upland Hills School. And Upland Hills School has three beautiful buildings, the geodesic dome, the main schoolhouse, and then the Karen Joy Theater. And then just across a bridge built by the 7th and 8th graders during the early 90s, it connects to the Upland Hills Ecological Awareness Center, which is an earth-insulated, solar and wind-powered building that was built in 1980 as a, as a experiment to try and be completely self-sufficient in its own generating capacity and sustainability. We never really succeeded doing that, but I would say that the Ecological Awareness Center to this day, and so is the school, somewhere about 70% of the electric, electrical energy is produced by the wind and the sun. Um, and right now, I would say that the Ecological Awareness Center probably has a very, very low footprint mm-hmm. uh, in terms of consumption of natural gas or consumers' power electricity. So I, that's a long introduction, but uh, I've spent most of my life in community, and I should say our life has been embedded in community. And as I said, not only did our two children attend the school full term, but also our oldest grandchild, Sophia, happened to be in Michigan for a part of one year and attended our school. So we've actually been able to be with our children all the way through their, their childhood and every day. And we also had the amazing grace and benefit of having our oldest granddaughter attend Upland Hills School for a year when she was four and a half years old. Wow. That's, um, that's a very unique privilege to see, to see your children every day during school and, and even your grandchild in the same school. That's, that's very powerful. And I, I would love for, for our listeners to get an even more um, like an image of Upland Hills. So if you were to walk the landfill what what speaks to the the eye what what is it that that um that upland hills feels like and looks like it's interesting how much it's changed since we came to this part of upland hills farm and that was in 1972 when we started building the school here because right now it really looks like a rainforest it's lush and there's lots of green everywhere you look and right outside of our windows is this forest the wonderful thing about this particular location is that it is contiguous to St. Benedict's Monastery which is another 200 and some acres Upland Hills Farm is 240 acres and then it's also contiguous to something called Bald Mountain Recreation Area and then it's also contiguous to something called Addison Oaks Township Park there are a number of lakes that are connected freshwater 
inland lakes that are here, and it's defined by the Paint Creek River. And so there's a, a creek that runs through this thing and this part of the world, and it is also... Oxford is known as the gravel capital of the world. I don't know if they made that up, but there's a tremendous amount of gravel that is underneath this ground, and it's gravel and clay. And unlike much of Michigan, which is flat, this is a very hilly part of the world. And so we're on a Michigan mountain. The monastery sits on top of that mountain. It's only a thousand feet above sea level, but from that hill, you can see Detroit on a clear day. So where we are is special in that Oakland County, the county that we're in, is a fairly wealthy county and very populated county. But this corner of it, which is the northeast section of the county, is wild. And that wildness was a key and is a key to how we teach children. We always say that the natural world is a primary teacher. And we have created a curriculum at Upland Hill School where the kids can spend by choice as much as a half a day every day outside under the sky. We call that sky time. And the reason that we have a very specific name for it is because in education, for some reason, at some moment with all the metrics and the industrial model of education, it was how much seat time does it take to teach trigonometry? And so they would calculate how long it takes for a butt to be on a seat in order to teach a specific subject. And so as an antidote to that, we talk about the entrainment of children to the natural world and how much sky time is required in order for children to fall in love with the natural world because once they fall in love, they will protect, nourish, nurture, and defend her. And that is exactly what we've discovered over these four decades. Wow. Wow. Sky, sky time instead of trigonometry time. I like that. And Mother Earth or, or the natural realm as a primary teacher. That's, that's very powerful, Phil. I, um, I know that you're also an author, and you just wrote a book that's about to be published with the title, The Future of Children. Is that correct? Yes, the full title is The Future of Children, Providing a Love-Based Education for Every Child. Mm -hmm. And it's being published by Emergence Education Press, And it will be released. It's available now on Amazon.com. All you have to do is Google the future of children and my name, Philip Moore, and you'll find it there. And our official book launch is the, this fall to this winter. So there will be a number of events in the, on the East Coast and on the West Coast and maybe in the middle, of course, because here we are in Michigan. So th there will be a number of events related to the launch of Got this it. book, The Future of Children. Got it. Um, well, Phil, so normally I ask people, what kind of superhero are you? But in your case, um, maybe let's elaborate beyond your superhero power. You have four decades of embodied experience in an alternative way of teaching and sharing and guiding. And so tell us, how, how does the future of children look? How does... How does um, a love-based paradigm, um, how does it come to be in your, in your words and in your eyes? Well, the word paradigm shift, the words paradigm shift, have come to indicate this um, 
Thomas Kuhn wrote a book on paradigm shifting in the 50s. And really what it was about is about how there are very distinct periods and epochs in the human history when the paradigm shifts from, oh, we live on a flat earth and the earth is the center of the solar system. And usually science is the leader of the paradigm shift. And once that happens, a tremendous amount of struggle and confusion and conflict, even cataclysm occurs, but also things like the Renaissance occur, where imagination and creativity are, are freed up in a completely new way. And so your worldview changes. So... From Thomas Kuhn's book in 1955 to this moment, we are experiencing a paradigm shift. And I would say this paradigm shift has both science and spirituality interwoven like a strand of DNA. And so rather than being pure objective science, we see the new physics and we see the new biology and we see the relationship to something that is more subjective. In quantum physics, we all know that right now, as a physicist, if you look at this particle and you choose to observe it as a particle, it will be. And if you choose to observe it as a wave, it will be. So we understand that there's a, a subjective aspect. And I think Deepak Chopra's book, um, We Are the Universe, is really a good indication at this moment of how the paradigm is shifting from one of individual thinking things and the individual achiever to one that includes all beings and that this self-talk that we have in our brains that says, oh, this is Phil having a conversation with Julian and all of these words are arising from Phil's experiences and, and Julian is listening and this is going to be a, a podcast and people are going to listen as individual separate thinking things one of the ways of looking at it is that there's a great mystery as to where these words are coming from and they're really not coming from something centrally called phil that that's a fiction and that there's something much greater that's at work which has to do with the great mystery that's guiding us all so when we begin to wake into this next paradigm the love-based education is really how it will happen. In other words, until more and more of us are loved into being, until more and more of us are connected in communities that are bound by common values and a deep love for each other, and more and more of us are breaking away from the individual achiever paradigm and from the self-authored paradigm and moving towards self-transforming paradigms, places where we can reside that are very unlike the place that we continually seem to reside in, then we will continue to go down this very destructive path. Because at this moment, waking up is what is required. And so the future of children is dependent upon our collective awakening. Mm -hmm. Wow. A self-transforming paradigm. So that means... Th th give us more. <laughs> well, self-transforming mind is a stage of development. And what it really means is the ability to be free 
and to reside in many different perspectives and to experience those the world and reality from many different perspectives and to also be much more in touch with the invisible rather than the visible so really to to realize that you know, if I was looking for Julian and I took you apart, if I was looking for Phil and I was taking me apart and had so much blood and organs and sinew and bones, there is there'd be nothing on it that says Phil. Hmm. There is no Phil in there. And so I would say that self-transforming mind is really being wired in a very different way. And, and and that's why I call this stage of my life my rewirement. It's because I'm not tired all over again, so I'm not retired. I'm not, oh, I was tired the first time doing the work to make the money, whatever. And now I'm retired, you know. But rewired means that I'm orienting myself in space and time very, very differently. So I gave away my watch at some point of my rewirement with, with the evolutionary collective we had a giveaway and so there went my watch you know and, and my relationship to time is now very different it's very much akin to what Jing or Jean Gebser would say is the fourth dimension of time where, where time is 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 past and present is already here in every moment and so time isn't just this sequential uh, thing that keeps, analog thing that keeps moving forward. So you have a very different experience of your life when you begin to occupy a self-transforming mind. You include all the other things that happen. So there's a certain amount of self-authoring and individual achiever, but it's always include and transcend. From self-transforming mind, the world is a very different place, and, and you experience it in a very different place. And the invisible is more powerful than the visible. Mm -hmm. Well, let's do this, Phil. Did you plan on experiencing what you are experiencing right now or what you have experienced with Upland Hills or how did that come about? Where, how did you, how did you get there? Did you study to become a teacher or? Well, I was aware as a child in school, the industrial model of education in Royal Oak, Michigan. I knew as a sensitive child that something was wrong. And my earliest memory is in second grade. And so I know that I had an experience in that classroom. My classroom teacher's name was Mrs. Hart. And I thought of her as Mrs. Hartless because she was sarcastic. And she often would ridicule or humiliate former uh, uh, classmates of mine in class. And I knew there was something wrong with that. I was raised by very loving parents, and so I just knew that this person should not be in contact with children. From that light going on very early on, I knew that there was, there was something in me that wanted to somehow right this wrong, that children should be loved into being, and that just gathered steam as I continued to unfold. I started out very much as an introvert, but later became more of an extrovert, and I think of myself as being an ambivert. Uh, 
somebody who can be both an introvert and an extrovert. And what happened was I began to speak out, even in high school, about injustice and prejudice and a number of other issues that were roiling at the time. Civil rights struggle was key among them, but also the environmental movement was about to be born. When I went into college, I, I did go into the School of Education because there were enough radical educators there. So I could get through that, that system because of the permissive and experimental atmosphere of the 60s. However, when I taught at an, my student teaching at a traditional public school in Highland Park, Michigan, it was really clear after I crossed my supervising teacher about corporal punishment and would not let him strike a child that was in his classroom, he wrote on my file, Philip Moore is unfit to be hired as a teacher in any public school system. So it was a great gift, really, because it just made it clear that I could not operate in that system. And Buckminster Fuller was the beginning of my rewirement. I was really drawn to Bucky's words, and I was really drawn to his ideas and his ideals and his values. And there was something that occurred in the summer of 1970 called World Game. It was an antidote to war games, which were being played at that time. And World Game, according to Bucky, was how to make the world work for 100% of humanity without endangering the natural world. And so I wanted to play this game. So where many of my generation wanted to go to huge, massive rock concerts, there were a very small subset of us that were just totally not interested in massive rock concerts like Woodstock. And we went to Southern Illinois University and began playing World Game. In some very real sense, I've never stopped playing that game. Mm. How to make the world work for 100% of humanity without disadvantaging the natural world. And so when we found out while we were living in Spain, Karen and my, my wife Karen and our daughter Nina were traveling for a year after World Game, we were led to the south of Spain. And during one of our journeys into the city of Malaga, I ran into an old camp counselor friend who told me his parents were starting a school on their farm. That's how I learned about Upland Hills School. And so I said, we're still traveling. I don't know what's going to happen with us. And he said something like, well, you always talked about doing a different kind of school. I just wanted you to know that if you wanted to enroll Nina in a different kind of school, uh, <clears throat> one is happening on our farm called Upland Hills Farm. And coming back, trying to find work in many different places, almost being offered a position in Maine, and then deciding to make it work here and enrolling Nina in school in October, I became a staff member in December of that first year, and they asked me to become the director in February of that first year. So I've been here ever since as a social artist, doing exactly what it was that I, I, I was called to do.
Now, I could say it that it was me, the individual achiever, who was doing this thing all along. But just from the very beginning of the story, waking up in second grade and then going to this thing where Buckminster Fuller starts, I was clearly being called and drawn. And all I was doing was listening and believing that I needed to follow those intuitive instincts and to say yes to things that were in front and, and emerging. So I really don't feel like I did this. I feel like it did me. Somehow the great mystery, you know, was calling me and I was listening. I paid attention. And because of that, I was able to live a life of great meaning and, and purpose. I don't see it as a superpower. Buckminster Fuller said every child is born a genius and gets degeniused as they grow older. And there was something about that that really called to me. I believe all of us, all of us, 7.2 billion of us on this planet at this moment, all of us have a gift, many gifts. And that it, the true function of education should be to draw out those gifts. And those gifts have to be in service of not just humanity but at this point it's of of the entire biosphere mm. and all of life on the planet and it's even beyond that because there's an actual cosmological cosmological part of who we are as a species that's connected to the universe and you may have heard as so many people have said that we are made of the stuff of stars you know carl sagan in his beautiful cosmos series says this at one of the last episodes that we're made of the stuff of stars so there's a, a cosmology a universal a way of thinking about this that's far beyond our s small planet and our beautiful solar system and this part of the milky way galaxy that has to do with multiverse and so i would say that being in alignment with that and listening closely not so much to the self-authoring part of our who we are because that's an egoic function but listening to something much deeper that's always there and and there for all of us and it might be is it might be very simple you know raising children in a conscious way might be a, a total life calling and i can't think of a, a more beautiful life calling than that in, in our case it was a little bit you know more dramatic because we got to build these buildings and we got to interact with children in an intimate way and just like holding victor dickmeyer in my heart this morning you know in a way karen and i have over a thousand children in our hearts and it's not just us it's also gene ruff and it's also holly newman and it's also ted strunk and it's also jan butcher there are people that we work that we work together as, as a as a team that feel this way about the the people that we're connected to here and it's beyond that it's what the lakota people would say the green nation it's also everything that is green on this planet you know, is our is our relative. And it's also, as the Native Americans might say, the creepy crawlies. So it's the insects. And it's also the four-leggeds, you know, the mammals. And it's also those that slither, you know, it's the snakes, it's the salamanders. All of that is really a part of our consciousness. And, and it includes the meditation that I had this morning was 
with the Pleiades, was with a star constellation. So it, it definitely includes the universe as well. And as we approach the eclipse, you know, there are a number of people who are, are drawn to this event without knowing exactly why. The event will be just over two minutes. But it is something to take note of because it was during an eclipse that Einstein was able to prove his theory of relativity. It was only during that eclipse that he was able to verify the speed of light and the, and the curve of, of the universe. And so this is a very auspicious time for us as a species on this planet, and we're in a final examination. And no one knows whether we're going to make it or not. But there is a possibility, and there is a domain of possibilities that are beyond anything that we could ever imagine, which is why living in a, in a in Almost, I, I feel like that people, many people on the planet are awakening right now. It could be as, as much as 7% or 8% or 9% of the population. And in some ways, we're on a threshold between the dominant paradigm and the next one. And, and, it, and it really never was a large group of people that shifted the paradigm. The Renaissance, breaking out of the Middle Ages, did not occur as a global phenomenon. It really occurred a very small group of people relative to how many people were on the planet. And so the Enlightenment really grew out of that. And so there's, there's now a very significant group of people all around the world. And because of the spiral dynamics data that I've seen, it could be as much as 7 or 8 or 9% of 7.2 billion people who are awakening. But that's a lot of human beings who are in this threshold. And I would see the threshold as having the very beginning of the awakening, and I would see those in the center of the awakening, and I would see those like Jeff Carrera and Amy Edelstein, who are the founders of Emergence Education Press. I would see them on the very edge of the awakening of this next paradigm. Hmm. Wow, um, I, I must say I'm speechless. This is this is exactly um, exactly congruent to, to my personal worldviews, and there there's a reason why this conversation is happening um, r right now in exactly this way, Phil. Um, I love what you're saying about how it's not the individual self that comes up with the actions or the words. Um, it's it's the space between us that kind of allows for, for things to arise. Um, maybe tell our listeners and, and myself a little more about mentors in your life. I know you've had the, the big privilege to spend time with Ram Das, with Buckminster Fuller, with Deepak Chopra. Um, tell us a little bit more. How does, um, how does that influence one um, in that state of mind that you're in? Well, I would say that everything is uh, vibration and frequency and waves when you find someone who embodies those that quality and really is humble and there are ways of detecting whether they're needy or whether they want something from you because if they do then they're they're not in that vibratory place and if you're sensitive enough to be in the presence of them then that 
field really is enlivening and enriching in ways that nothing else can be. So weather, in my case, have been very, very lucky. But I have to also say that I can say Ramdas and I can say Buckminster Fuller, but I can also say Rhea Sullivan, who is a hundred-year-old person who taught at our school and who began as a, a school teacher in a one-room schoolhouse in 1938. And and her humility, I would say Jean Ruff, who was taught at our school for uh, 20 or 30 years. So it's not just the people that have these names and these reputations and have done something. There, There's so many people who have integrity and have this radiant field, this vibratory essence, that if you could see their aura, you would see it as being something very bright and that really draws you to your highest self and it always has humility in it. When it is tinged with egoic development, then it's a very different kind of experience. I really don't know Deepak Chopra. I had the, the privilege of being with him for a very short time recently and what an amazing human being. I've always respected his his work. It's Etc. But I do know from being with Buckminster Fuller for maybe 12 hours in my whole life, if I would put all the time together that I was with Bucky, it may have been 12 hours, half a day. I know from being with Buckminster Fuller for that 12 hours, that field was so enlivened and so awake and so profound that it doesn't really go away when he goes away it changes the chemistry of who you are so you 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 transmute in the presence of the true of, of the true enlightened souls and so with Krishnamurti for instance I had an experience with Krishnamurti two of them one of them was a very nice walk that we had together and and what I discovered in being in his presence that there was something off that I could sense. And that it, there was something that that I could not trust with Ramdas and with Buckminster Fuller and with Gene Houston. Oh my God! There was just pure love, pure, beautiful, vibrant, alive, awake, multi-dimensional love, and coming through as curiosity, which I think is one of the one of the hallmarks of our species. Mm. Really curious people who know how to listen and deeply. So when you're with somebody who is is kind of on the cusp of becoming that, you can tell the difference because they're often not very, very much interested in hearing about you. Mm. But when you're with these other people, and you know, I'm just mentioning three because they're central to me and they, they have trans muted parts of my body and my being and my essence, meaning that there's something now that I'm carrying because of our interaction. Dean Houston and Buckminster Fuller and Ramdas, in their presence, even when I'm not in their presence, I'm in this radiant field with them because they are of that field. Hmm. They don't generate the field. It's not coming through them. You know, it is of them. And they have done the necessary work in order to be open enough and free enough. I think that that's the other word that I would use, is there's a freedom in being with, them, with people like that. And they are, they are 
lights. They are the lights of the next paradigm. I feel that when I'm with Jeff Carrera. I feel that with when I'm around Amy Edelstein. I feel that with Gail Worcello, who was just here, who is a sister, a nun for Thomas Berry. And uh, if your readers don't know about Tom Berry, the book The Dream of the Earth by Thomas Berry is really an important uh, thing. And, and if you don't know about the Earth Charter and Brian Swim, I think that's a really important aspect of consciousness. And so both of those are really important, Brian Swim. But Gail Worcello, who is a nun and a monastery called the Green Mountain Monastery in Vermont, is also one of these people who is just awake and alive with this vibratory energy that you can totally trust. It's it somehow the ego is, is playing the secondary role on a, on a full-time basis. And it's so rare to meet people where the ego is really, you know, that's an aspiration that I have, and I've got a long way to go. But I, I really sense that what I've learned by being in the presence of uh, Jeff and Amy and Gail and by being in the presence of Bucky and, and as I mentioned, Rhea Sullivan and these other people. And my wife is one of those people. You know, Karen, being in the presence of Karen, has a beautiful vibrational energy that has integrity to it. And when you're around enough people like that, you create an interbeing. And that interbeing has to be tested. It, it, it doesn't get there by all... It has to be complementary. The dark side has to be fully embraced and understood. Cataclysm is a part of the universe. And so I think when I, when I talk about Bucky and when I talk about Gene and I talk about Ramdas, I'm talking about people who have had life experiences that include enormous amounts of pain. And yet that pain has somehow been resolved in them so that they can hold on to the darker aspects of who they are and, and use the universe mission in order to gain the energy that is required to be as vital and vibrant. Jean just turned 80 years old. I, she's, a, she's a powerhouse. She's a dynamo. She is like a son. She is such a spark of divinity. And Bucky, when I met him, was in his 80s. And he was absolutely just so alive and so vibrant. So there was this tremendous amount of vitality. When you meet people whose vitality is really turned down or depressive aspects, and certainly I know that because I have a Russian grandmother and I have that depressive aspect in my soul. I realize that, oh, that's what the opposite is. I somehow need to embrace that in order to, for me to be really whole rather than transcend it or rather than um, repress it. And so I think that it's really important to realize that when I'm speaking about these people and what I call them superheroes, no, I wouldn't. I wouldn't. I would call them people who have have moved closer and closer to being enlightened and embodiments of enlightenment. And all of us are capable of doing that. But these are the ones who have listened to the great mystery so deeply that they've gotten closer and closer and closer to that. And they're living from that source. Hmm. So their decisions are being made from that source. And they have plenty of time for their family 
and they have plenty of time for their children, and they have plenty of time for all of those around them that they love. So if they're if they're overcommitted, you know, I'm so important, I'm so self-important, I, you know, you, you have to schedule time with me, and they're on that train, then they're certainly not these enlightened people I know. Because Bucky w- was just so clear of how important friends and family and making new friends and increasing that circle was he was just so clear that this is what was important and yes he had this amazing itinerary that ran him around the world continually but he always had time for the smallest child always had time for the person he met on the plane and wanted to connect with always had time for being in front of a group of deaf children and 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 doing his lecture through a translator there and seeing how remarkable they were, then you know if you start to cry in their presence, you know that this person has has a vibratory energy that is close to enlightened. Wow! Yet yet again, powerful, Phil. Um, I I want to highlight one thing you said that that resonates a lot with with my my way of listening, you said not transcending the dark stuff, but embracing. And I find that very interesting because the word transcendence is something that's, that's being used quite, quite a bit lately. And transcending really doesn't mean ignoring something, but embracing. So how could you guide our listeners and myself into how embracing the full spectrum of what it means to be human um, how, how, how could that look? Well, it takes a tremendous amount of courage and willingness to do that. And I would say the, the center of it would be something like lots of deep silence. And that's why meditation can be a doorway to that. Um, and it always depends on the kind of meditation it is and how it's taught. But there's a word that we were working with this last weekend called incendence, as opposed to transcendence. And that indicates another direction. That indicates a direction of going inside, incendence. And I think very often self-awareness really is the key. And how willing we are to become self-aware and what lengths we're ready to go to, whether it be a vision quest where you're fasting and praying for a vision in the natural world and you're in your prayer circle, or whether it be, and not as many people in younger generations seem to be very excited about experiences, collecting experiences, one experience after another. And there's something beautiful about it, you know, food that you've never tasted before or styles of beer that have been homebrewed or, you know, all these things that are, that are about uh, this experience, this experience, this experience, this experience. Direct experience is very powerful and it's a key to the, to the next paradigm. But unless it's being complemented by inner experience, by by doing lots of nothing, you know, and by really doing that self-inquiry, going inside. Incendence is a word that Thomas Berry used, I think, or Teilhard de Chardin. One of them used that word. And I think that the difference is that you can 
meditate and have really cool, cool experiences. Actually, transcendental meditation is a great example of that. And you can really go far in that. But unless you understand that it's not you meditating, it can only go so far. The domain of possibilities is far greater when you break that container. Instead of it's Phil on the cushion, it's Phil that's doing this meditation, it's Phil that's being so quiet. Oh, I'm really having a great experience with these other people. And this is just another experience along the way. You're acquiring another experience. That's really the individual achiever still doing the individual thing. And I think, you know, my experience really has been that you have to be continually courageous to be self-aware. And you're never done. You're never finished. We're maybe at the beginning of a paradigm unlike anything we've ever seen before. And I don't think it'll be the technology that'll blow our minds away. I think it'll be the quality of who we are and how connected we are. And the, and the sense of well-being when we know that there are no more species dying on this planet and that we are fully employed to try and save what we can of the Cenozoic era and end up creating an Ecozoic era that fully appreciates our role as the dominant species of every, every uh, bio-habit habitat on the planet at this moment and when we come together with full realization and consciousness about that then we'll be at the beginning some of something that none of us can can anticipate and it has in my view it has nothing to do with oh we're immortal now and we've conquered every disease and we have implants in our eyes that can come up and google will tell us exactly whatever it is it's just it's just not that it's it's just not that it's invisible and it has to do with the great mystery and it's far beyond our knowing hmm. It's such an honor to have you on uh, Green Planet, Blue Planet podcast and speak about biosphere and speak about the, the ecos. And um, I'm, I'm very, very, uh, yeah, fill, filled with, with this awareness right now, how, how powerful it is what you're sharing with us. I have two more questions for you, Phil. And one of them is about your imagination, how, how we, how we, what we could do on this planet. So, if you tomorrow, for a fact, had $13.7 billion, Phil, what would you do? Well, seven, how, well, how much was it? <laughs> 13.7 billion. 13.7 so billion. So, that's how many years, perhaps, from the Big Bang to this moment? Is that where that number comes from? From, the, from what we would call the Great Flaring Forth, we have said that it is 13.7 billion years ago to this moment. And if we had that kind of actual dollars, I would say that it's a real mistake to think of dollars as anything more than an abstraction. And uh, so I would start by saying that true wealth is invisible. And, and if we had the capital of, of, of true wealth that was on this planet at this at this point it wouldn't be how i would use it it was it would be how it would be employed in order to love all of the children on the planet into being because along with that first you empower women more than anything else this planet needs to have 
an awakening that is all about the most powerful aspects of the sacred feminine. And it has to be married in some sense to the sacred masculine. But you would start with the women and you would go to the women first and then it would be the children would be the direct result of that. They could be loved into being, and then we would wake into a consciousness that I was pointing to, alluding to, where the number of humans on the planet was held in a check and balance, and every beautiful living organism and habitat was being protected and restored. So the the work of the planet would be not that we can create the Cenozoic era, because that's a one-time gift. That the flowering of the planet was a one-time gift. But we could wake up into it and do everything we can to remediate all the poison water on the planet and to restore all the habitat and to do everything we possibly can to to nourish and nurture the flora and fauna to protect the dna i think that would be an extremely important aspect of a new paradigm so that the dna does not get disrupted and poisoned any longer so i guess i would use an enormous amount of capital and deploy it on behalf of all women and children. Powerful. I love what you've done out of this question. Um, then here, Here's one more that, that really wants uh, your imagination in it. This is, I, I shared that with you briefly before we started the recording. This is my favorite question, and I am um, very happy to ask that question to a lot of people. And I encourage everyone listening to really think um, and imagine what, what this, this would be like for you. So, Phil, here's the question. If we as humanity had a shared 200-year vision of planet Earth, what would yours look like? Well, I've already begun to talk about it. The world would work for 100% of humanity without disadvantaging the natural world. And the glimpse into it would be a glimpse where relatedness has the status that things have in this current paradigm. So let's say you own three houses and a yacht and a plane and you have all of these servants and you can fly wherever you want to and whatever we say, the, the lifestyles of the rich and famous, if you could Take a, a television program like that, you know, or a series like that, and you could, and you could, instead of it being about acquisition and things, it was all about relationships and seamlessness. And ego is no longer; it has a very reduced secondary role in the operating system of the planet. Then you would have these celebratory experiences that we sometimes encounter, perhaps we have glimpses of it in things like Burning Man, although I've never been to Burning Man, but it seems like there's something there about that tribal consciousness. What I've experienced here is that uh, the richness and the rewards are when a student reaches out from the past and and says, you know, I'm graduating from college. I hear you have a book out. I would love to see if, if our teacher would 
use it as a text or I would love it if I could buy it and come by and see you or you know you there are these moments where you feel like everything that you've done has been in some sense kind and compassionate and it has touched someone very deeply so I would say kindness would be the new currency a world where kindness is the new currency and the ego plays a, not just a temporary but a permanent second role. <laughs> yes. Wow, Phil, that was a very powerful hour with you. I'm very grateful to have you on this podcast and to be connected to you and to let your words resonate with all of us and may they inspire us, touch us and move us to create our lives from here on forward. Thank you so much yeah. for your time, Phil. Thank you, Julian, for this opportunity. 